Hey, Gord Tolton, Magnus here. I just want to let you know that the People's Republic of Magnusness will annex your lands, liberate your people, and we will compel you to enjoy Toronto Maple Leafs hockey. We will teach you about the awesome splendor of the Maple Leafs over and against your pathetic Calgary Flames. The spirit of Tim Horton will light the way. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Ah! Dr. Doom wears body Seal his own Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and ordinarily, this show's all about comics, movies, and TV shows, but right now, I'm still near the beginning of what's shaping up to be a, basically about a year's worth of six-episode miniseries dedicated to specific themes, or topics, or characters, or ideas, or whatever. Take this current run of episodes, for example. Starting right here in this very episode, I'm kicking off a series all about women in comics. Now, usually these miniseries have some type of cutesy little name to them, but I just can't think of a name for a series about women in comics that doesn't come off patronizing somehow, so I'm just calling this series Women in Comics because I'm so inventive. But anyway, the idea here is actually pretty straightforward. Simple fact of the matter is that comic books are mostly a man's game. Now, that's changed somewhat, yeah, but I think you can still fairly say that comics, as a form, are mostly about men and created by men. Well, not to sound like Mr. Politically Correct Guy, but I like women in comics, so why not talk about female-oriented comic books that either I've always loved or else I've just never read before? I mean, hey, I thought it made sense. Now, one character that I've always loved is the Cassandra Cain version of Batgirl. I mean... She's basically this ridiculously lethal super assassin that Batman recruited into his family. That works for me on so many levels. Still, 
I only really knew Cassandra as a supporting character in Batman's own titles, rather than the lead character in her own title. I always intended to track down her series and give it a day in court, at least someday. And this Women in Comics miniseries really did seem like the perfect time to test drive a couple of issues, so we'll just see how far I can get. And that's about as good a segue as I can hope for to get into Batgirl number one. Executive editor is Mike Carlin. Cover artist is Damian Scott and Robert Campanella. Writers are Scott Peterson and Kelly Puckett. Pencilers, Damian Scott. Inkers, Robert Campanella. Colorist is Jason Wright. Letterer is John Costanza. Editors are Darren Vincenzo and Joseph Illage. Now, the very first thing that you see, obviously, on any, on any comic book is going to be the cover. And just a, just a casual glance at this cover, it assumes that the reader has some sort of famili- familiarity, both with Batgirl in general and this Batgirl in particular. And that actually adds up because of the fact that this is not exactly this version of Batgirl's first appearance. So that much actually does ring very much true. But nevertheless, this is still a really nice-looking cover. You've got Batgirl. She's swinging around through uh, Gotham City. And on the one hand, members of the Batman family swinging around through Gotham City, sort of glory shots like that are... I would almost go so far as to say that they're a dime a dozen. But even so, this is just a very well-done cover. You've got these crazy angles, and you know the perspective of it is all tilted. And Batgirl just looks friggin' awesome. And so, I don't know. It's just, this is one of those covers that I've always just had a real, a real soft spot for. I've always thought this is just a very effective cover. Now, to get into the actual issue, though, on the very first page, we see it's basically young Cassandra Kane, and so far, a man, an unidentified man, Staging a video camera setup, and that actually sounds a little bit creepy at first, just to talk about it, but oddly enough, it doesn't sound as creepy as it should. It is creepy, just going in a different way. Basically, these are hired thugs that the unknown person, this man, has hired, and he basically wants them to attack Cassandra, you know, young Cassandra Kane. And it's, re- it's actually kind of hard to say for sure just how old she is based on her build and everything. She actually looks like she could be anywhere from 8 to 12 years old. It's just hard to say. But in any case, one of these uh, thugs, he actually stands out as, as being a little bit memorable, partly because he's got a scar on, on uh, the right side of his face, and partly because he's got uh, the, uh, the letters M-E-R-C tattooed to uh, his right bicep. So... What do you want to bet we're going to be seeing him again before this is all over? In any case, though, the thugs ask, you know, what exactly is up with this camera? I mean, this is a professional camera. Why are you going to need something like this for whatever it is that we're doing here? And the unidentified man says that he basically just needs high-speed film. And... From there, the thugs basically... This takes us to page two. The thugs basically just question why it is exactly that they're standing on plastic. And as if in answer to that, young Cassandra Kane 
sticks this really scary looking very lethal looking knife into the floor and she just has this very just kind of scary and evil expression on her face and this is a very good i guess opportunity to just kind of put the whole shit on pause and say that this is obviously not batgirl as we've known her i mean the girl that's working with batman at least right now She's got her, her problems, she's got her limitations, but I, I just, I personally have never quite pictured her having this kind of scary looking grin on her face every time she goes into battle. And so, right from the start, this should kind of tell you that this is not quite the same character that Batman's used to dealing with. That's still a few years off. Anyway, so the thugs question why it is that they're standing on plastic and really, without answering, the unidentified man just says, pick up the knife and try to cut the little girl. And the thugs are, at least at first, they're unwilling to do that. And then Cassandra goes on the attack, and she pretty much fucks them all up. And at one point, one of the thugs reaches really desperately for the knife, the guy with uh, M-E-R-C tattooed to his, uh, to his arm, reaches for the knife in desperation because he's, he's had teeth knocked out, he's bleeding all over the place. And you know what? All of a sudden, having a weapon of some kind sounds kind of good. But not having it. Cassandra braces one of his legs up against her arm. Or actually, I should say braces one of his arms up against her leg. And then uses her other leg to kick him right in the elbow. And it basically folds his arm in on itself. Fa uh, folds, basically folds his elbow against the joint rather than with it. I can only imagine how fucking much that would have to hurt. Anyway, so she takes the guy down, and the, the guy operating the video camera questions if anybody else maybe wants a knife. And that's about all we get for the time being. We cut back to the present day, and Cassandra, adult Cassandra, and Barbara are basically sparring with one another. They're using a scrim of sticks, and they're having a sort of... How shall I put it? It's just basically sort of an impromptu sort of sparring match. And it's kind of an interesting thing to think about, given the fact that Babs is confined to a wheelchair. And speaking of which, in panel two, this is page... Why, though? Uh, yeah, this is page four. Over Babs's shoulder, we see a, a picture of Babs-era Batgirl swinging around and doing her thing. And I guess that's probably a pretty good moment to just kind of emphasize that, you know, when I was first reading this, you know, for this episode, I guess I hadn't really, like, fully appreciated the fact that, you know what? Babs has a stake in Cassandra Kane, in this new Batgirl. I mean, as much as anything, Cassandra's not exactly taking up uh, Barbara's uh, mantle as such. She's not wearing her symbol. She's not wearing that outfit. But she is using the name, Batgirl. And of all people in the DC Universe, Barbara Gordon has a right to sort of impose herself on this girl and say, you know what, if you're going to use my name, we're doing things my way. And I like the fact that this issue, it basically gives Babs a stake in Cassandra Cain. It, gives, it basically gives Babs sort of an entree into this new Batgirl. And it really wasn't until I started reading this that I thought, you know what, of all people, we need Babs to have an investment. 
in, in Cassandra. And so this moment actually plays really well for me. And this is not to, not to mention the fact that on page four, what we see is Babs actually sort of win their little sparring match. Yeah, Cassandra is a trained assassin. Yeah, she's deadly as hell. And yeah, Babs is stuck in a wheelchair, but she's not a shrinking violet. She can take care of herself, and there are things that she can still do. And I just, I, I like the fact that it, it, it plays up Babs's, I don't know, agency in all of this, I guess. So that actually played really well for me. And lest you think I'm just making stuff up here, Babs actually makes a point of saying that, you know, hey, I have been doing this for years, you know. This isn't exactly my first sparring match. And it's just, a, it's a really cool moment. I like it. It just plays really well. And so from there... Babs decides that, you know what, Cassandra's had enough practice for one day. There are other things that she needs to study. And that's pretty much the end of their sparring match. But later, and this takes us to page five, later what we see is that, you know what, maybe Babs is not as self-assured as she wants us to think. The reason for that is because we see her just sort of hunched over her, her workstation, and she's going through her files, which is to say, she's going through the Batgirl file, you know, her own file on herself. And being as the, you know, she's dealing with the reality now of a new Batgirl on the scene. The file that was originally named just Batgirl all by itself and talked about Babs is all of a sudden not very descriptive. And so she has to think up a better file name. And old Batgirl just doesn't seem plausible somehow or flattering for that matter. So she decides to call that file original Batgirl. And again, this plays into the fact that Babs has a stake in in Cassandra's future. It's not it's this is not just an assignment that the Batman's given her. She has an investment in this. And again, it's just it's really powerful because of the fact that yeah, Babs has really made a name for herself as Oracle, especially by this stage of the game being as that this comic came out in uh, the year 2000, you know, I think it would be fair to say that that Oracle was a force to be reckoned with somewhat in the DC universe at large, but most certainly in the Batman books. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean that she's necessarily completely happy with all of this. And so, I don't know, I just, I really appreciate the sort of, the conflict that, that she's feeling here. You know, yeah, she's happy, you know, she was happy on page four in her sparring match uh, with Cassandra, and there was there was definitely determination that she she have some sort of influence with this new Batgirl. But here we see on page five, it's you know there is an emotional quality to it that you know she's not entirely happy with all of this, and I just really like that. Now, from there we get a couple of panels where. Basically, Babs brings new readers up to speed on what exactly Cassandra Kane is all about. And she says, Acquired at birth by master assassin David Kane, Batgirl was raised in isolation, trained day and night in lethal combat. She escaped nine years ago, and since that time has, by her own account, simply drifted. Understandable, given her, her other childhood legacy an almost total incapacity for language. 
otherwise highly intelligent, she knows at best ten words. And here we see a panel of uh, Babs just saying out loud to a picture of David Kane, just what the hell did you do to her? And that's a very good question. I mean, it was one of those things that I don't think was ever explicitly said in No Man's Land back when uh, Cassandra first showed up on the scene, what exactly her her malfunction is. And obviously then the promise here is we're going to find out, maybe not in the first issue, but we are going to find out a little something-something about just what it is that David Kane did to his daughter. Anyway, so Babs is startled at that moment, and she looks over her shoulder to see Cassandra in full Batgirl gear standing right beside her. And she obviously never even heard Cassandra walk up, and that's pretty impressive, because like I say, I mean, yeah, Babs is confined to a wheelchair, but it's not like that somehow dulled her senses. She she can't walk, perhaps, but, you know, page three was all about, you know, proving that, you know what, she can still hold her own. So for for Cassandra to have enough skill that she can sneak up on, on Babs, that kind of says something. Anyway, from there we cut to elsewhere in the city, and it's it's a man who's basically slapping around a homeless guy and steals his uh, his bottle of alcohol from him. It looks like what I guess we're supposed to take from this is that it's a bottle of uh, Jack Daniels, but honestly the label doesn't say for sure. And from there we move over to, this is page 7, and... It's at this moment that we realize that what this, what we're truly looking at here is a flashback. This is a post-escape Cassandra coming face-to-face with the Merc, for lack of a better word, uh, that this guy has. He actually comes face-to-face with Cassandra for the first time since she kicked the shit out of him. I'm guessing it had to have been a few months earlier because he's still wearing bandages and stuff on his arm. But at the same time, he still has some kind of mobility of his arm, and... I'm sorry, if somebody just destroys your elbow like that, it's going to be a hell of a long time before you have any kind of mobility with your arm back. So I think what we're supposed to take from this is it's been several months, possibly even a year, since Cassandra fucked him up. And he certainly remembers her because he he, he wastes no time in freaking out, smashing the bottle, and then threatening Cassandra with it, telling him to stay the hell away from him. Meanwhile, the homeless man, is he's freaking out all by himself. Cassandra knows that she could take this guy out without really a whole lot of effort, so she decides to run for it. Now, the mercenary knows for himself that the only reason he's still standing is because Cassandra lets him. He has no illusions about that, and he pretty much breaks down screaming and sobbing and crying in the street. And honestly, it's kind of hard not to feel for the guy, because, you know, you got to figure, here's a guy that's made his... He's kind of made his reputation, he's made his living on being a badass, and here some little girl pretty much destroyed him. And not just destroyed him, it's, I mean, bad enough, you know, that he, that he was beaten by a little girl, but he was destroyed by her. And just the physical pain that goes along with that, I don't care who does it, if anybody physically just hurts you in a big bad way like that, yeah, you're going to feel it, you know? It's going to it, it's gonna have an effect on you. I don't know as I want to go so far as to call it post-traumatic stress disorder, although maybe, but that's not something that happens just for free and then you can forget about it. 
And anyway, it's just, it's kind of sad. I mean, you know, yeah, the guy's a piece of shit, but still kind of sad. So anyway, from there, uh, we cut back to the modern day. This We're back in Gotham City. This is a crime in progress, and it looks like some young hooligan is about to dishonor a young woman when Batgirl swings to the rescue, and uh, she doesn't really hurt the would-be rapist. She basically just stops stops him from... Uh, from let's face it, raping this, you know, this victim that he found out in the streets. And then out of nowhere, Batman swings out of the shadows and just knocks this guy in the middle of next Tuesday. And Batman uh, forces this would-be rapist to apologize to his victim. And I gotta be honest, this is one of those moments of the story that just sort of fell a little bit flat for me because I've never completely bought into it when a superhero sort of forces an apology from the assailant to the victim. I mean, there's some kind of macho bullshit that goes on with that. And I don't know. I've just always kind of found it a little hard to believe. And so, and I'm guessing the would-be rape victim found it hard to believe too because she makes a run for it at the bottom of page 10. So I guess so much for a uh, coerced apology. Anyway, from there... Uh, we cut to what I assume is the next day, and Cassandra's basically playing with a uh, with a rose. She drops a petal out the window, right as uh, Babs pays her a visit and says, basically, you know what, let's talk. Let's just go for a walk, let's hang out in the park, let's just level with one another. And basically what Babs is really trying to do is say, I guess find a way for Cassandra to open up. You know, what is your story? What happened to you? How do you feel? And things like that. And honestly, it's not... The impression I get from this page is not so much that Cassandra doesn't want to talk about it. It's that she doesn't have, I guess, the vocal capacities to talk about it. And she's really got limited emotional faculties to to really cope with what she went through. And if you think about it, I mean, if you're raised to be an assassin pretty much from the time that you're born, I mean, how do you have that conversation with somebody, you know? I mean, your entire perception of what's normal and what's normative in the world is pretty fucking skewed. Let's be real, you know? And so it is a little bit melodramatic and it does add conflict and tension to the story. Uh, which is to say this issue. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like it's arbitrary bullshit either. It really does feel like Cassandra has seen, been through, and done things that I don't think there's any therapy out there for you. When, you, when you've had this kind of life, sitting in, in silence and listening to CDs of waves crashing on a beach and going to your happy place somewhere in your mind, your nice, safe place, that's just not going to cut it. I mean, you know, some some experiences in life just go too deep. And that, I think, is where Cassandra is, is really coming from in all of this. She's got demons that, as much as Bab wants, Babs wants to help, she doesn't really have the tools to really help Cassandra with. So, I don't know. I mean... 
yes, it's a little bit melodramatic on the one hand, but on the other hand, if there's anything to be melodramatic about, I mean, sorry, this is kind of one of them. And so, anyway. We cut to what I assume is later that night. Cassandra's having a nightmare while Batman, in full Batman gear, you understand, uh, watches and Babs points out, she kind of offers running commentary uh, for it, that this is pretty much a nightly occurrence. This is Cassandra's sort of, I guess, night-to-night reality. And really, Babs chooses this moment to kind of question Batman on it, you know? How sure are you that you're not moving her along too quickly? I mean, look, the chick's only 17 years old. And... Batman actually comes up with what I think is a very effective way of shutting Barbara down on this. He, 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 he basically just asks her, hey, look, who does she remind you of? Out of everybody that you know, who does Cassandra seem the most like? And Babs tries to find a polite way to put it, but she says, you, which is to say the Batman. And the Batman uses that as, as a foundation to say, look, of all people, I know exactly what she's going through. I know what she can handle, and I know when she needs a breather. Let me decide. And so Babs basically interprets that as an invitation to change the subject. And she basically chooses this moment to ask Batman, look, just how much do you know about her? What do you know about what David Kane did to her? And this is the moment where Batman sort of exposits what exactly, I guess, Cassandra's glitch is. And he, he basically lets the reader and Babs know that David Kane experimented with infants. He trained them in isolation and deprived them of human speech. And I guess the intended purpose for all of this was that section of your brain that's reserved for communication, not necessarily verbal communication either, that was used to interpret movement as language for the purpose of channeling that into combat. Now... That's one of those things that it's just comic booky enough to sound plausible. But as it happens, I've got a little bit of firsthand, exp- well, secondhand experience, I guess, uh, with, with all of this. Um, what happened was, uh, it's about, uh, it about 10 years ago, I guess, I worked at a computer company here in town, and I was sort of their all purpose internet guy, right? So. Pretty much anything that had anything to do with the internet, that was my responsibility. So, internet sales, some eBay stuff, uh, building and maintaining the company's website, keeping up with their electronic inventory, etc., etc., etc. Those things were all my responsibility. And so, as part of all of that, I had to, I had to spend a lot of time out in the warehouse with. Anyway, that's just sort of the the day-to-day minutia of my job. And so one day, one of the sales guys brought in, I guess it was like a cousin or a nephew or something like that. I never actually really figured out what the 
the familial connection there was. I just know that one day this guy, Chris, he brought in this uh, teenager, skinny, ginger-looking dude. And he was going to be there for a couple of days to work. And, you know, this was really his first job. And I think what Chris wanted was for was for this kid to just, I, I guess, kind of have a safe work environment. You know, that if, if you need it, family's here and I've got your back. And right off, that really should have been a tip-off. But I, I, w- I guess I was younger in those days and I, I don't know, had less empathy, I guess. I didn't read between the lines on that. And should have. Chris later told me that... I'm not sure if this qualifies... It's definitely neglect, but, you know, there's a sort of blurry line between neglect and abuse. And I don't really know... I don't know. Whatever. Point is, this kid was raised primarily by his grandmother, who really neglected him. She didn't really change his diaper a whole lot. And she didn't really go too far out of her way to teach him speech. You know, how to speak. And that was made apparent whenever, you know, the few times that I ever, you know, needed to talk to the kid. It was like he was struggling to form words. You know, he had thoughts and ideas and feelings, emotions. Those things didn't escape him. But the idea of verbalizing this stuff, it was just, I could see it in his eyes. It was a huge challenge. His addiction was completely off. And especially with English. I mean, English is one of those languages that it's very dependent upon the tongue moving. It's, you know, you can find languages in the world that are, they're more in the back of the mouth, you know, near your throat. That little punching bag that hangs over your windpipe, I forget what it's called. Um, But it's more, you know, type language rather than type language, you know, that makes any sense. And English is very, it's a very tongue-based language, you know. And so I could see that it's, it was as though he just, he just wasn't moving his tongue a whole lot when he talked. And so that sort of affected the way that he was able to pronounce words. And it was just a very different mode of speech. And I could see he, the kid was – he wasn't trying to be a dick or anything. He was, he was really a nice guy. He was trying like hell to communicate what was on his mind. But number one, he hadn't really been trained – in, in, I guess, speech and communications. And number two, he didn't really know how to talk all that well either, you know? Like, I'm talking right now, and I'm using my tongue to help form words. It's not just in my lips. It's also in my tongue. And it's like he just didn't get that. He, he understood that he needed to use his lips to form words and stuff like that, and that's fine. But it was as though he just didn't understand that, you know what, the tongue has a role to play in all of this too. And I got to tell you, dude, I mean, I didn't want to do it at work, but I just came home and fucking cried because, you know, I mean, my parents, you know, we had our differences on little things that I don't really think matter in the grand scheme of things. You know, they took care of me, you know, and I did not come from that sort of neglectful, borderline abusive background at all. That was not my childhood at all. And, you know, this poor kid was trying his best to make it in this sort of unusual nine to five type of world with people that he felt completely fucking isolated from. And, you know, I just, I, I, how can your heart not break for a guy like that, you know? And so, now what does this really have to do with Cassandra? It's not, like I say, it's not exactly the same thing. But it it rings very true to me based on that experience that I had, you know, with that 
neglected at that point he was a teenager so and he was in a much better environment for those of you looking for a happy ending here as much as there can be one he was in a uh, a better and i would say more stable environment by that time but at the same rate dude i mean damage is kind of done on that you know so anyway like i said just came home fucking cried and that was sort of my i guess my my entree into cassandra kane's head you know that the, you can neglect. It is possible to neglect and in some ways misshape and damage spoken communication. So to me, it's not, and I mean this in total like fuzzy comic book science type of way, it's not really that big a stretch to think that, you know what, maybe you could adapt that section of, uh, of your brain that's used for, that's basically your speech center. Maybe you could use that as a, as a sort of compartmentalization for combat and training. I could, in a comic book way, yeah, I could kind of see that, you know? So my, my point here is to say that this isn't as arbitrary to me as, I don't know, some other stuff that you may see in comics. This actually, I can, I can kind of half-ass believe in. I mean, I can, in fact, you know what? I can believe more in this than I can that... Uh, Bruce Wayne would survive one night as the Batman. Put it that way. So, there you go. But Bruce's point in all of this, to kind of bring it all back on topic here, Cassandra can read uh, body language. She reads that the same way that most other people hear and interpret words. To her, it's it's the same set of skills. And because of that, she is maybe even more dangerous than Lady Shiva who I think at this point was probably considered the most dangerous hand-to-hand combatant in the entire DC universe, Cassandra may actually be even deadlier than Lady Shiva. And if you think about it, that's pretty fucking dangerous, people. I mean, everywhere Lady Shiva goes, people seem to die. She seems to kill them with uh, her bare hands. So to me, someone who's even deadlier than she is, it all of a sudden kind of rings true. Yeah, Batman would want somebody like that on his team. Not as a weapon, necessarily, but more as a shield to protect her and to protect others. Look, if she's under Batman's command, she's going to follow Batman's orders. She'll do things the way that he tells her to do it. You know, it's better that Batman use her as an ally than face her as an enemy. And this is one of those moments where I think Batman's tactics... You know, people call it Bat-God, where everything that Batman does... He's got triple contingency plans, you know, backups of backups of backups. And, you know, he's got every single possible angle covered. And this is one of those times when, you know what, that characterization actually rings very true. It's not here just for plot convenience. It actually does somewhat go to, not just to Cassandra's character, but I would say it goes to Bruce's character, too. You know, he's got to be the one who's in control of all of this. And... Ultimately, I somewhat tie all of that back to Nightfall, and I've talked about that, I think, at length in other episodes, and God knows I'm going to be talking about it again in the future. Suffice it to say, I think that Batman learned a lot of lessons from all of that, and so he's a little bit more ruthless now. You know, Once upon a time, he might have refused any type of a partnership with somebody like Cassandra Kane on a vowed fucking simple moral principle. Whereas now, he views it as, 
I guess he's a little bit more pragmatic about, uh, pragmatic about it in as much as he views it as he's channeling Cassand like Cassandra's natural instincts and behaviors where they're where they already want to go, but he's putting limits on her. She's a killer, and he's making her not a killer, but she's still doing what comes naturally to her. And I think that's really fucking smart on Batman's part. So, anyway. So, um, Batman's point in all of this is to say that she's so incredibly gifted as a combatant that David Kane never taught her stick fighting. But Batman did last week, and it took her five minutes. And so, that says a little something-something about just how deadly this chick really is. And so, anyway, moving on from there... We uh, we see Batman sort of taking taking a, a I guess a personal training session with uh, Cassandra. This is on let's see this is page I wish they'd number every fucking one of these pages but only the occasional page has numbers so this is page let's see twelve thirteen fourteen so yeah this is uh, page fifteen it's Batgirl versus Batman and Batman pretty much has to say you know what. Don't play this shit with me. Don't hold back. Show me what you can really do. And in an odd kind of way, she already has. Batman, out of nowhere, just coughs up blood. Now, again, Batman's one of the most dangerous hand-to-hand combatants in the entire DC universe. At, uh, or at least he was at one of the you know at the time that this comic was coming out. And so, if she's so good that she can hit Batman so hard and so fast that he coughs up blood and do it in a way that he doesn't even realize that it's happened. That's fucking dangerous. And so, anyway, you can see that in a weird, sick, fucked up Batman kind of way, he's actually kind of proud of her. Anyway, so, because of the fact that this is a comic book and because of the fact that you've kind of got to keep uh, the narrative moving, we cut to, basically, it's a robbery in progress. And once again, it's the mercenary. Uh, he's robbed what looks to me to be uh, an armored truck. He's killed the guard. And there's a moment where Batgirl just stands over the guard, and she's got this sort of... It's an expressionless mask, of course, but nevertheless, you can still emote in comics through expressionless masks, I guess. And she actually looks like she's mourning this guard's death. you know. And that, again, is another interesting insight into who Cassandra is, that she's a killer, but on some level, she's aware of what it is that she's done, and she doesn't view taking life lightly. This is not this is not fun and games to her. And so, it's just a blink and you miss it, but I think it's actually a pretty interesting little character moment here. And you know what, now that I've mentioned it, I don't think I've said so much as a word about Damien Scott, you know, the the penciler of this issue, and honestly, I really do apologize for that because of the fact that, you know, guys, look, I'm a writing guy, all right? That's, you know, everybody, I think most comic fans, they've got, they've got their forte. You know, usually they, they tend to analyze art, others analyze the writing, and when the time came to choose up sides, I chose writing, so this is just the hand I've been dealt. But it's nevertheless, I, I, it, it, it's remiss of me 
to completely ignore, you know, what exactly it is that Damian Scott has brought to the table in all of this. And it's just, there's this, like I say, it's just this pained expression on Batgirl's face. You see Batman, he's chasing the thief uh, down the alley, but Batgirl's just taking a moment, I guess, to sort of just take in the loss of life here, you know? Somebody died because of this man's greed, this mercenary and uh, his greed. And so she's taking a moment to just acknowledge that. And this, again, speaks to, you know, I guess on the one hand, how similar Cassandra and Bruce are. But on the other hand, how different they are. Because it rings true for me that Batman doesn't waste time for tears or mourning. He just chases the suspect. Cassandra knows that she's going to catch him. There's no huge rush. She doesn't have to go after him right this second. She takes a moment, I guess, just to weigh the human cost of all of this. And that is just powerful to me. And so, anyway. Moving on, we cut to the mercenary, who, of all things, is... He's basically reciting a a passage from the Bible. I want to say that this is a psalm, but I... It could be Proverbs, I forget. But basically he says, Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. And I think the other part of that is the wisdom to know the difference. But in any case, um, no need to give you guys a Bible lesson, I suppose. So, uh, out of nowhere swoops Batgirl, who, to my point, she knows that that she's going to catch this guy. And so she goes for it, and she swoops in on him, and for just a minute, there's nothing on, there, there's no text on the page that says, hey, this is what it means. But what I'm interpreting from the art is that that moment that uh, Cassandra took on the, uh, on the page before this one, where she just mourned the dead, uh, the dead security guard of this armored truck, now that morning has turned to rage. And now for the first time, she's afraid. She's not afraid of the mercenary. She's not afraid of his gun. There's nothing that this guy can throw at her, and she knows that. What she's afraid of is what she might do to this guy. And that again goes to character. It emphasizes the fact that, yeah, David Kane, uh, he, uh, he raised her to be assassin par excellence, but... This is something that she's haunted by. She may have been trained to be a killer, but she's not natively a killer. This isn't what she wants. And honestly, that's a part of herself that she's aware of, and she's scared shitless about. So there's a moment where the mercenary actually gets away, and Cassandra pulls back precisely because she's afraid of what she's about to do to this guy. He sort of makes makes his escape, and as he does so, Cassandra sees it's a literal shadow of the bat on the wall. She's casting a bat-shaped shadow on the wall, and there are a couple of ways that you can interpret this. Number one, she sees that she's becoming Batman, and that may not become a very positive thing for her when all's said and done. On the other hand, Batman is the one guiding her. Once upon a time, she might have, she might very well have killed this guy and never even given it a second thought. Batman's guidance is now what's making the difference. So, 
like I say, there's some ambiguity to all of that. It's all in how you want to look at it. So, anyway, from this, she gathers a little bit of resolve. She catches up with the mercenary once again. She slaps him around a little bit. And he actually speaks, uh, speaks up and he questions, you know, who exactly she is. And for that matter, what exactly she is. And she tells him, shut up. And it's right around then that you can kind of see that there's a toilet flushing somewhere in this guy's mind. He knows all of a sudden who she really is. She's got the mask on, but he knows exactly who he's dealing with. He know he may not know Cassandra Kane by name, but he does know that it's Cassandra under the mask. He's scared shitless. He all he can say is you in recognition of her before she ninja kicks him in the face and knocks him out. And from there, we cut to a scene where Batman and Batgirl just sort of survey Gotham City, and Batman pretty much breaks it down for her. He lays down the rules. Or really, the rule. One rule. No costumed criminals. Oracle's going to tell you what that means. As for the rest, and, he, and he's gesturing to the entire city, as for the rest, it's all yours. Remember, on those streets, you're me, meaning you're Batman, you're me. And then he basically dismisses her. Go, just go out there and tear it up. And that's page 22. And typically comics end on page 22, but actually in this case we get page 23. To kind of call back to the beginning of the issue, we see young Cassandra Kane in what looked like that karate dojo. She's covered in blood, and it's actually film uh, f- frames of a uh, of a film strip that David, now elderly, David Kane is uh, he's watching her, uh, watching young Cassandra, completely dismantle that group of mercenaries from the beginning of the issue, and so I guess it all comes full circle. My point in me and in, uh, in uh, mentioning all of this is because that really plays more into. I guess upcoming issues and and from the looks of things, I don't know that I'm actually going to have enough time to talk about uh, upcoming issues, at least not in detail. But suffice it to say that uh, this is it, it relates more to I guess goings on in uh, future storylines. I think specifically Bruce Wayne Fugitive, and so all around, I just found this. I actually read more issues than this, uh, you know, for this episode, but I'm guessing I'm not going to be able to get to them. But um, whatever, you know, there's always the future. But um, as I've said before, I've always liked Cassandra Cain as Batgirl. I like the entire concept of Cassandra and her lifelong training and being shaped into a deadly weapon. And if you ask me, like I say, I think it's completely fucking logical that Batman would recruit her over to his side. Batman probably doesn't want to have to fight her, but at the same time, someone as deadly as she is, is she's just too dangerous to be left to her own de- uh, devices. So, of course, Batman's going to co-opt her to his cause. And I guess to, to kind of tie it all back to you know earlier my earlier comments, another thing that works for me is that Babs is also Cassandra's sort of guide in all of this. You know, Babs is pretty much the founder of the feast when it comes to all things Batgirl. So she needs to be invested in Cassandra 
probably even more than Batman does, and that works for me in as much as it, it, it plays into Babs's character, but it also gives uh, Cassandra these sort of dual influences at work. You've got Bruce, the stern taskmaster. He's every bit as driven as she is, maybe more so, which is saying a lot. But you've also got Babs to kind of be a sort of kinder, gentler influence. She has her expectations of Cassandra as well, but she's not necessarily looking to make every single moment a teachable moment. He's not. She's not necessarily looking to always weaponize Cassandra. And so there is, I think, I don't know if this is necessarily going to be an element of future issues, but it's there's there's a sort of opportunity here to kind of have a push-pull thing. You know, you've got Bruce pulling Cassandra from one side, Babs pulling her from the other, and they... They both want what's best for Cassandra, but they kind of have different ideas of what it takes to get there. And I think that kind of speaks to the to the differences in worldview inherent to Batman versus Babs. And anyway, it's, you know, I'm, I, like I say, I'm going long as it is, so, you know, I don't want to get too much into that stuff. But it, it does it does strike me that all of this and more, I think, is either implicit or explicit to everything that uh, Scott Peterson and Kelly Puckett are up to in this comic book. And that's an interesting... That's just kind of an interesting thing, because these issues... It's almost hard to read, uh, hard to believe, as I read them, that these are the guys... These are the same, I would say, major creative talents behind the Batman adventures which was nowhere near as dark a book as this is, these same guys also created the Batman adventures. And so I guess my point is that Puckett's one of those writers with a real knack for telling stories that are almost completely silent. So I guess when you think about it, he's kind of the ideal choice for this type of character, at least on paper. And I got to be honest, there are a, a few sort of disjointed moments here, but those are kind of smoothed out a little bit when you kind of analyze character, the sort of push-pull thing that's going on between between Bruce and uh, uh, Babs, as personified by Cassandra, the sort of uh, uh, pulling and tugging and back and forth between the two of them. I just, I just really enjoy that. So, um, now as to the art, Damian Scott's got a sort of interesting Scott McDaniel type of style, and... I don't know if I'm uh, exactly prepared to call Damien uh, a McDaniel ripoff as such, but the similarities really can't be ignored. I mean, Damien's got a, 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 I guess, a kind of similar interest in those weird, crazy angles and perspectives, just like Scott McDaniel does. But in in this issue, he's not quite as good at that stuff as McDaniel is. And I guess a good example of what I'm talking about here is actually on page 10, where Batman and Batgirl beat the holy piss out of a would-be rapist. Now, I happen to think that the action there is a little bit unclear and uneven. I mean, exactly where the fuck did Batman even come from and all of that? I mean, what's going on there? Another thing, though, is that McDaniel probably would have had a much more interest, uh, just intricate and complicated arrangement of panels and things like that. And I'm not saying any of this to pick on Damien. He's Damien Scott. He's not Scott McDaniel. But 
like I say, the comparisons are a little bit inevitable here. But one thing he does throughout this entire thing is give Batgirl this sort of emotional palette on her face. It's this sort of expressiveness that's somehow visible through her mask. I mean, Spider-Man's specialized in this for decades. Now, it's precisely because of the fact that the lead character in all of this is uh, almost totally mute. You really do have to find other ways of conveying emotion. And body language and facial expression are pretty much all Cassandra Kane really has to work with in terms of expressing herself you know, for most of this story. And so if you guys take nothing else away from all of this, let it be understood that my point is that Damien does a great job with that stuff. You know, um, a, a good example of it is, like I said, that bit where Cassandra is, is sort of mourning the dead security guard of that armored truck. She just takes a moment to mourn the fact that, you know what, somebody died here today. And to her, that's not, ex he's not cannon fodder, he's not nobody, he's not small potatoes. Not to her. And she felt that in a very personal way. And that was conveyed really powerfully through her facial expression. I mean, I know she's got that full facial mask going and everything, but there's still an expression there. Another thing that Damien does really well is... <sighs> He's really good at setting a mood, you know? That final panel on page five shows Babs looking over her shoulder and finding Cassandra in full Batgirl gear standing right behind her. And that scene's just full of shadows and stuff, and the only light is coming from Babs's computer monitors and all that stuff. And it's just, it's a little bit of a spooky image, is basically what I'm saying. So, anyway, so I think I've pretty much, I guess, talked myself out here, so. I think that's basically it for this time. I'm going to get into uh, more Batgirl issues in the future. I don't know when, you know, if, but I'd like to cover at least three issues in some future episode. So I guess just keep a keep an ear out for that. Like I say, I mean, the next maybe year or so is kind of filled up with, you know, these, uh, you know, these six issue or sometimes or six issue, sorry, six episode miniseries, and sometimes are even longer than six episodes in some cases, but these miniseries that I'm going to have going for a pretty long time, and so that's just something to be aware of right there, that uh, I'm, I'm not really sure when I'm going to have a chance to get back to Batgirl, other than to say that I am in fact going to get back to Batgirl at, at some point or another, but it's not going to be in this episode, and honestly, it's, not, it's certainly not going to be next week either, because... Next week, I'm going to be talking about Ms. Marvel. So just uh, come back for that because I'm going to be continuing my Women in Comics series. And so just something to be aware of there. So those of you who enjoy Ms. Marvel, come back for that. Because I loves me some Ms. Marvel. And I think you guys are going to enjoy it too. So anyway, I'm going to stop rambling now. I think that's pretty much it for me. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Well, hey there. This is Huckleberry Ham. And when I'm not busy making movies or TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books. And lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out? Head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. Sounds great, Mr. Hound. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, no problem, fellers. Now, if y'all excuse me, I have to run. I'm shooting a movie. It's a western, and if y'all see Quick Draw McGraw, don't tell him. He's still hot at me about the good, the bad, and Huckleberry Hound. And once he gets all El Cabong, he's a pain in the you-know-where. And then there was this one time that he and Baba Louie had a little too much sarsaparilla, and Quickdraw said something to Magilla Gorilla that I won't repeat, you understand? We were shooting Yogi's gang, and things got mighty tense. Boo-Boo, and, and Boo-Boo's a great feller, real sharp, love working with him. Boo-Boo kept it all from Yogi, you understand? But boy, I tell you, TwoTrueFreaks.com. Tell them Huckleberry the sent you. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. 
You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy.